you have preschoolers going to children's church, if they can go through that back door on the sanctuary at this time. Welcome again. We're glad you're here. And uh, if you did come as a relative or a friend for the baptisms, a special welcome. Great to have you here this morning. And uh, if we can do anything for you, please let us know. If you are visiting, just to let you know what we're into here, we're, we're studying through the second book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And pretty far into it now. This is just shy of where Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, and that'll be the last week of his life. Um, but uh, he's not quite there yet. We're in Mark chapter 10 this morning, beginning in verse 46. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. I'll be preaching from, from that text. So Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46. One of the things that people who saw Jesus recognized about him, at least most recognized, whether they followed him or not, or, or bought into what he was saying or not, was that he was a prophet. And when we hear the word prophet, we tend to think of someone who tells the future, what we could, you know, we could say foretell. And some prophets did that, but often the, the real meat and potatoes of what they did and what they wrote, what they said, was what we could call foretelling. So they weren't predicting the future, they were saying just, on God's behalf, here's what he wants me to tell you. But sometimes in the prophets, if you look in the Old Testament, God didn't just give them words, but he would give them something to do where, where they became something like an object lesson, a visible object lesson about what God wanted to get across. Famous example is the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And you may know this story because the way the book of Hosea begins is that God calls Hosea to do something that, strictly speaking, is unbiblical. And that is to marry a prostitute. And so at God's command, he does. And she's unfaithful to him. And he's supposed to stay committed to her. And what God is saying is, I'm not just giving verbally a message to my people, but I want them to see, sort of, a, I want them to have a visual of what it's like for me to remain committed to them when I'm faithful and they're not. So Hosea's marriage, his body becomes, his emotions become a visual. And the reason I bring that up is because this is the last healing that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And when he got to Jerusalem, I'm sure he did more, but this is the last one that's recorded. And I want you to think about this, that the miracles Jesus did, especially the healings, they're not just parlor tricks. It's not just hey, I can make a leper have new skin, or I can, uh, I can raise somebody from the dead, and just boom, look, look at what I can do. They are pictures that God wants us to see of who He is and what He's able to do. The whole miracle, you might say, is an object lesson. So here's, here's the question before we read this text. This is the healing of a blind man. Jesus apparently did that a lot, but this is the last one that's recorded right before what we call the triumphal entry, right before what we call Palm Sunday, is this text. What is the Lord showing us through what Jesus did about himself and about us? Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples... And a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we would pray what the psalmist prayed, and that is that your word is more to be desired than gold, even than very fine gold, and it's sweeter than honey from the comb. And we also know that as we come uh, because of our, the state of our lives or the state of our heart or things that we love that we shouldn't, or preoccupations that your word doesn't, uh, it doesn't taste sweet. Or it doesn't feel valuable. It doesn't sound valuable. So please change our hearts. Give us ears so that we hear it and see it and taste it for what it really is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Disclaimer on the front end. My opening example is weird. I'm telling you ahead of time. There's a comedian named Dave Chappelle. The fact that you're laughing already, already makes me, it makes me nervous. Uh, that happened at 8.32. Dave Chappelle, a few years ago, uh, on his TV show, did a skit that I thought was brilliant. And here, here's how it went. It was a spoof of uh, a PBS show called Frontline. And PBS Frontline is like an investigative journalistic you know, story or uh, show. And so a PBS Frontline uh, correspondent goes out uh, to find this man named Clayton Bigsby. Now, he begins this, this episode by saying that you may, you may have never heard the name Clayton Bigsby, but he's a renowned white supremacist. And even though his books are not sold in stores, he has sold hundreds of thousands of books, he has never granted an interview until now. And so this correspondent goes deep into the rural south to find him and comes to his cabin, and it looks just the way you'd expect. And he walks up, and there's a man sitting on the front porch on a rocker with the, the big, you know, block out all the light glasses so, and, and with a cane. So he's obviously a blind man. Correspondent comes up and says, I'm looking for Clayton Bigsby. And uh, the man says, well, you found him. And he identifies himself as Clayton Bigsby and he just begins to just rail, kind of do what he does. He starts to just rail against everyone that's not white and everyone that doesn't believe the way he does. The thing is, Clayton Bigsby is played by Dave Chappelle, who's African-American. So it's the, what Dave Chappelle has done, he's, gotten, he's, he's presented you with the spectacle of someone sitting and railing against himself. And so when the correspondent goes into the backstory, he goes to this local home for the blind and he interviews the woman that, that cared for Clayton Bigsby when he was a little boy. And she said, well, he was the only child here who wasn't white, so we just told, we didn't tell anyone we didn't tell him that he wasn't white. We didn't tell the other children that he wasn't white. And so he grew up this way. And so you've got a non-white man railing against non-whites. Now, when I saw that, I thought, number one, uh, that was bold. <laughs> number two, that it was, it's brilliant. It went from comedy to art. 
Now, Dave Chappelle, he can, he's provocative and he can push the envelope, but it, it's the picture, for instance, of somebody who just rails against religion and hypocrites, religious hypocrites and hypocrites in the church, but that person, everyone who works with them or lives with them knows what a huge hypocrite they are. So, you know, yelling at the thing you are. In the Bible, there are all kinds of metaphors for sin. And, and, you know, we've talked about a lot of them. But one of the recurring metaphors for for our sinful, fallen human condition, Old and New Testament, is to be blind. And I'll give you an example. Uh, This is not in the Gospel of Mark, but it would have happened just a few days after this when Jesus, he rides into Jerusalem... Matthew chapter 23, that whole chapter is just sort of a big chew-out of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. I mean, Jesus sort of says everything he's been wanting to say. And not three times, not four times, but five times what he calls them are blind people. You're blind. You're blind guys. And just think about that because he's not talking to Irreligious people, he's not talking to people who worship other gods. He's talking to people who believe the Bible. He's talking to people who believe, unlike most of the world, that there's only one God, and it's the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he created the heavens and the earth. They believe all that, and Jesus is looking at them and saying, you're blind. Now that may be you this morning. It may be that you wouldn't have used that metaphor to describe your life right now, but, but there's just this sense of, I don't get God. Or I don't get my life right now. Or I don't get myself. You know, you, you feel like it should be the most natural thing in the world to be comfortable in your own skin. And it is one of the hardest things to be comfortable in your own skin. But all those might be manifestations, maybe, of what the Bible calls blindness. So... This text is not about a man who's metaphorically blind or symbolically blind. This is a man who's physically, literally blind. So let's look at this healing because it's no coincidence that this is here right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem for what we call the Passion Week. And let's just break it down this way. What happens before this meeting? What happens during the meeting? What happens after the meeting? Okay, so before, during, and after. What happened before this meeting? I'm going to just collapse a bunch of stuff, hopefully, into a little bit of space. If you've been coming for a few weeks, you heard me just a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 8 talk about another time earlier where Jesus healed a blind man. And in the commentaries on Mark, most agree that that first healing in chapter 8 of this blind, of this blind man and this, well, let me put it this way, these are like bookends. Chapter 8 and then our passage this morning are like bookends. Two blind men are healed. And you got these things that happen in between. Think about this. Right before that first healing, Jesus is talking with the disciples, and they're just not getting it. They're not getting it. And he asks them a rhetorical question. Do you have eyes but cannot see? And right after he asked them that question, he heals that blind man. And then some things happen, and then you get to our text. What happens in between those bookends? Let me, let me give you a few examples. Um... Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Is he right? He's right. And then Jesus says that he's going to be handed over to sinners and killed. And Peter rebukes him. 
you're the Christ, the Son of God, and you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, evidence piece number one, exhibit A. Not too long after that, Jesus is out and he's speaking and he's healing and um, parents and maybe older relatives and friends, they're bringing children for Jesus to touch them and bless them and they're being stopped and rebuked by people. Who is stopping and rebuking them? His disciples are. So Peter and James and John are, are going, no, don't let the children come to Jesus. Do not let Jesus touch your children. And Jesus is indignant that you would rebuke these people for bringing their children to me. And he welcomes them. But the disciples did not. The, the, well, just one more, and this one's really important. Jesus is teaching his disciples about how do you become great in the kingdom of God? How do you be a great person in the kingdom of God? And he says the way to be great, totally counterintuitive, is to be everyone's servant. And if you want to be just super great in the kingdom of God, be slave of all. And pretty soon after that, James and John, two of his main guys, come to him and say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we say. Okay, Never be put over a barrel that way, by the way. And Jesus wasn't. But he, here's, here's how he responded to them. He said, What do you want me to do for you? Does, does that question sound familiar? Because that's exactly what he asked the blind man in our text. That's going to be important. What do you want me to do for you? And they say... We want to sit at your right and your left in your kingdom. In other words, we want the two most important best seats in your kingdom, whether we serve or not. And, you know, I, as I've said before, this must have been one of the moments where Jesus is making this, you know, th- that, that, that physical motion. Now, these are disciples. These are followers of Jesus. They, I mean, they have left everything to follow him, but in some fundamental ways even though they know a lot that's true. They know a lot that's true. There's just things about Him they don't get, and it's like being what? It's like being blind. We're not, we're not talking about irreligious people. We're talking His disciples. And then healing those infamous episodes, and then a second healing of a blind man before He goes in. Okay, and that's, that's beforehand. What about the actual event? What about during this meeting, at this meeting? We don't know a lot about this guy. Mark doesn't give a lot of information, right? He's, he's a blind beggar. His name is Bartimaeus. He's sitting right there at the, the gateway in and out of Jericho, and he's begging. And even that doesn't tell us as much as we'd like to know. Uh, like, is he begging because he's trying to top off what his family's able to do, or is he a man that doesn't have family and resources, so this is all he can do? We don't know, but it's not a great situation. I'll tell you what comes to mind when I think about a blind man sitting by the roadside begging. And this is important. Don't treat these like cartoon characters. You know, in the Gospels, if you've got a paralytic, you've got to ask yourself, what would it do to your life in the first century to be a paralytic? There's no federal assistance. There is no Americans with Disabilities Act. What would it mean for your life not to be able to walk? What would it mean... Uh, for your daughter to be possessed by a demon. What does it mean for him to be a blind beggar? Let me make an observation here. When, uh, w- when I started out in campus ministry, I went on a short-term missions trip to Mexico with a group of students, and we, uh, we flew into Acapulco, and we were in uh, rural Mexico. And when we were... W- I cannot talk this morning, sorry. When we were about halfway to, uh, to the village where we were going to work, we stopped off to get Cokes, because, because that's what we do. 
and we're in this little village, you know, dirt roads, and when we, when we got our bottles of Coke, uh, we're just about to tear into them, and the leader said, wipe the bottles off before you drink them, which is probably great advice, but we said, why is that such a big deal? He said, you're, what you're accustomed to is paved roads, but these Cokes come in pallets on dirt roads, and here's how dirt roads work. They're not just cars and trucks on these dirt roads. There's horses and mules, and they leave their residue, and the residue dries out, and it's pulverized as it's run over, and that becomes the new dust, and it flies up, and it settles on these trucks with the pallets with the Coke bottles. And we all began to furiously, you know, <laughs> wipe our Coke bottles off. But when I think about, you know, a man sitting by the roadside, just don't put any sidewalk there. Don't put any paving there. That's where he would be all day long. He may have limited resources, but he may have virtually no resources. Well, he hears a crowd going by, and you know how it is that people who lose their sight, their other senses are heightened, but this is a big crowd going by, Mark says. And he asks, who is that? And someone says, Jesus of Nazareth. And it's interesting that Mark puts it that way, because other people in that culture would have been named Yeshua, Jesus. But this is Yeshua from Nazareth, and he has heard about him. And so he yells something that no other individual ever said to Jesus in the Gospels. A crowd says it in the next passage. But he yells out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's the only individual in the Gospels to call Jesus the Son of David. Boy, that could form out into 11 different sermons. But think about this. When, when Gabriel came to Mary to tell her that she's going to give birth to the, to the Messiah, one of the ways that he explained that is that your baby, your son, the Lord is going to give him the throne of his father, David. He yells out, and so then he's rebuked. And just a lot of people rebuking each other in Mark, left and right. So people begin to rebuke him. Stop yelling that at him. Stop saying that. Well, he was undeterred and drew up more breath and just yelled all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me! Now, first off, how does he know that? That Jesus is the Son of David. And I'll give you another detail. In our translation, when he comes up to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, in Greek it says Rabboni. That's what Mary said when she saw the risen Christ on what we call Easter morning. She said Rabboni. It's like an elevated form of the word Rabbi. It's my master teacher. How does he know that Jesus is Rabboni? Uh, I remember an event that used to be held at my alma mater, and maybe it's at different colleges, but it was called the Charity Bowl. And it was a football game between two fraternities, and, and uh, they both you know, comprised teams, and they would sell tickets to this game, and guys you know, relive their high school football glory, and, uh, and you know, the ticket prices would go toward a charity. Well, there was a guy that was involved in, in the ministry that I worked with, extremely gifted athlete. He didn't play at the collegiate level, but just what you'd call God-given athletic ability. So he was on this team. And he told me something that a friend of his on the other team told him after the game. He said, you were running the ball, and you were in possession, and I was coming up behind you, and I was in your blind spot, and I, I was about to take you out. And then you just did this thing, and just, you just juked me and lost me. It was like you knew I was there. How did you know I was there? And this guy's name is Brad. He said, 
I don't know. I just did. And I thought, yikes. You know, it's almost otherworldly. It's almost supernatural. But it, it really was like God-given ability, and I don't know how it works. I just knew. There are people you bump into sometimes in the Gospels, and they know things, and when you're, when just from the reader's perspective, you go, how do you know that? And the text doesn't explain it. But let me give you one example. In the Gospels, there's a Roman centurion, and he has a servant that he values, and the servant is, is very sick. He's dying. And he wants Jesus to come to his house and heal the servant. So he sends a delegation of people to go get Jesus and invite him to come. Well, Jesus is going to comply. So he's walking to the centurion's house, and then a second delegation comes from that centurion and say on his behalf, don't even come into my house. I don't deserve for you to come into my house, but just speak from a distance. And just from your authority, by word, you'll heal my servant. All right, how did a Roman centurion have such a robust doctrine of sin that he knew, I really don't deserve for the Messiah to walk in my house? How did he know that? I don't think I would have said that. And I'm supposed to know about this. And how did you know that he didn't have to come and touch the servant, that he could just will it? Verbally, from afar. How did you know that? And it doesn't explain, they just knew. How did this blind beggar, not in Jerusalem, not in Nazareth, in Jericho, how does he know he's the son of David, Rabbi not? We don't know. He just knew. And when he yelled that thing that no one else had called Jesus, Son of David, Mark records this detail. Matthew records this detail. Luke records this detail that something happened. It's the only time it happens in the Gospels. It's that Jesus stopped. It's the only time that happens in the Gospels where somebody says something and he's walking and he freezes. And he says, call him. And so they come over and say, hey, cheer up. Even though we were rebuking you just a few minutes ago, let's go ahead and get you up. And it doesn't say if he was assisted or he just kind of fumbled his way over there, but he gets over to Jesus. And um, Jesus asks him the same question that he asked James and John, word for word. What do you want me to do for you? Now, to us, that seems like a superfluous question. But, you know, you think about it. Bartimaeus, if I open your eyes, you will be able to see everything. You'll be able to see the things you like, but you're going to see the way the world really is. Do you really want to see the way it really is? I mean, it's kind of a la Matrix. Do you really want to see? Do you want to see what beggars look like? It's almost been less sad for you to be one and not be able to see. But wait till you see what you were and you have your heart broken. What do you want me to do for you? Rabbi and I, I want to see. And he heals him. And he can see. And he follows Jesus. Uh, what about after this meeting? And I'm going, to, I'm going to draw from the Gospel of Luke because Mark doesn't record this detail. But this would have happened just a few days after this. The next big thing is the Passion Week. Jesus, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, His crucifixion that Friday. When Jesus was arrested on what we call Maundy Thursday... Before he went to trial, he was taken into custody and was held for a while. We don't know how long. But Luke records uh, a detail about that period of time. He says that the, the, the people who held him in custody blindfolded Jesus and they struck him. 
So they, they, they tied him up where he couldn't see, and they pop him and say, prophesy, who hit you? And this is before the real, the real physical sufferings even begin. But, but the Son of God, Creator incarnate, physically can't see. Why is he in that position? And this is just a pattern you see over and over and over again, is that Jesus absorbs and becomes what we deserve so that he can win for us what we don't. And the reason he is tied up and in captivity and unable to see and being punished before even the worst of it starts is he is in a trajectory... It's going to end with what? It's going to end with him finally taking on himself the punishment for all our blind actions. I mean, blindness is not just an abstraction. Blindness is, God, I don't need you. Or let's make it worse. God, I don't want you. And I don't want, to, I don't want other people. And I don't need other people. That's blindness. And everything that that deserves from a holy God falls on His Son to free us from blindness. Every one of those physical healings was a picture of what Christ came ultimately to do. Why did He raise people physically from the dead? To show that you can trust Me to raise you from the real death you need to be rescued from. The death of your soul to raise you to newness of life where you'll never die again? Why did He give people hearing that were deaf to show us, hey, if you can't hear what God is saying, I can open your ears. Why did God heal the blind who could not heal themselves? It's a picture of if you come to God with empty hands and say, I cannot see. I don't get God I don't get religion. I don't get me. I don't get my life right now. I'm confused. He can give you sight. He'll give you sight. Now what are we supposed to do with that? And Let me just kind of zoom it in and make a couple of applications. The first being, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... And you either know that about yourself or you strongly suspect that about yourself. It may be that God's dealing with you. You Maybe you grew up in a church home and you thought you were a Christian and now you wonder, have I ever really been changed from the inside out or was I just kind of doing what what my mom and dad did? But especially if you come and you know you're not a Christian, I, I want to show you one detail in this text that I didn't really mention. Look in verse 50. Uh, he cries out, Son of David, and Jesus stops, and he says, Call him. And it says, they call the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling. In verse 50, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And that seems like a weird detail. Did he just unnaturally take his clothes off and go to... That doesn't seem to make sense in that setting. What does it mean? He's talking about what would he be using his outer cloak for? as a blind beggar. He would use it to catch alms. And so that would be... And I want to be careful here, guys. I don't want to to turn this into an allegory. But it's fair to say this would represent in his life 
without Jesus in my condition, here's what I can do for myself. Here are the resources that I can come up with to deal with my condition. When he heard that Jesus was walking by, he leaves that. And whether with assistance or not, just kind of fumbling ahead, he goes to Jesus. And I I cannot think of a better picture for you this morning of what you need. And I'm not speaking from the moral high ground when I say that you need that. What we all need, that's going to be the next application. And I don't know what your coins and your cloak are. Again, I'm not trying to be allegorical, but it may be what that looks like for you is that I'm going to read as many self-help books as I can to just kind of get my hands wrapped around my life right now. And maybe I'll sort of explore Jesus on the side. That's not what he wants. Or it may look like I'm going to control my my life through, I'm going to eat right, I'm going to hydrate, and I'm going to exercise, I'm going to take care of my body so that I feel good and I can be the best me I can. And maybe as as a component of that, I'm going to explore Jesus too. That's not what he wants. And there are good things you can learn from self-help books. And it's great to exercise, and it's great to hydrate. Great. It's great to make money. That's great. Unless it's the thing where you say, well, I'm going to hold Jesus at bay and sort of hold on to this because this is the best I can do for me right now. What he wants you to do, this is the picture he's providing. Right before he walks in there, to die. Just leave it. Leave it. It's not leave rationality, but leave your dependence on rationality. It's not leave money, leave your dependence on money. And come to me with empty hands and say, help me, I cannot give myself sight. I mean, maybe if you're the person here this morning who's saying, I don't get God, you may be in just the right frame of mind to come to Him with empty hands and say, I don't get you. But I do want to see. He is very merciful and He's very patient. But don't suppress that. But the other thing is this. What if you're here and for many of you, you are professing Christians. You are, you'd say, yeah, I do, I do follow Jesus. What about for you? You know, if you're a Christian, you're someone whom God has healed of spiritual blindness, but we fall back into living like blind people. The Apostle John actually names a way you do that. He says in 1 John 2, when a Christian hates his brother... When a Christian hates another Christian, that's blindness. You ever hated a Christian? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> or a forest of hands would go up. We, in this very room, we can hate each other. And you realize how that's a form of blindness. We're saying, is God the only one who's without sin? Yes. Are we all on a level playing field, equal sinners? Yes, except for theirs. All sin is equally deplorable except for hers, which is worse. And I hate her for it. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but I don't know. That debt is pretty compelling. I think I'm going to think about that one some more. It's a form of blindness. What do we need? The same thing. You know, let's not try to get on top of our lives and say, well, let me get it together. Let me get my disciplines and my viewpoints and my emotions together enough to come to Jesus. The Christian and the non-Christian both need to come with empty hands and say, I just, I don't see like I want to see. I don't see like I need to see. 
I don't get God or other people or you or my life like I need to. And I'm coming to you and I'm saying have mercy on me. And Christian or non-Christian, what, how do you come to Jesus? He's physically not here anymore. How do you come to Him? Through His Word. And crying out in prayer. And inserting yourself into His community of people called His body. Where He is present and He works. And you can meet with Him. Let me make one more observation and we'll come to the table. There's a great scene at the end of Pride and Prejudice. And if you've only seen the American version, you need to see the BBC version. Or you cannot go to heaven. <laughs> that may have been overreaching, but I would, I would urge you to, to watch that. But Colin Firthfirth uh, plays Mr. Darcy, uh, and it's just amazing. And it's this final scene where Elizabeth Bennis and Mr. Darcy who have just punched each other's buttons in all the wrong ways through this whole thing, really open up with one another. And Mr. Darcy, who, who in, at one level is a very good man, but he's arrogant. He's noble, but he's arrogant. He says to her, you know, I, my father spoiled me. And I can't fault him. I had a wonderful father. But he said, but I've, I've grown up prideful. And he says, I never would have seen these things but for you, dearest, loveliest Elizabeth. And it's, this, it's just, it's an amazing picture of you caused me to see the yuckiest things about me. But I sort of delight in it because I'm drawn by your beauty and I know that you care. I know that you care about me and that's why I learned it. What a picture of Christ. You know, Christ is beautiful. And He, if He opens your eyes, Christian or none, to what we're like, man, it's yucky things, often. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine. Yay! And reproof. Oh. And correction. Ah. You will see yucky things, but who's showing them to Who's letting you see? He's beautiful, He's good, He shows, He gives sight because He cares. Um, the hands of the King are the hands of a healer. Amen. Let's pray together. Christ Jesus, uh, as one who's seated at the right hand of the Father, we pray to you, you who have all authority in heaven and on earth, to give sight where we need it. And for the boy or girl or woman or man who's here this morning who has not yet come to you with empty hands saying, open my eyes. Would you open their eyes? Would you even put within them the desire to ask for it, to come to you and say, I don't even know what this means, but have mercy on me. Open their eyes that they might no longer be beside the way, but now following you on the way. For those who know you, Lord, open our eyes that we might see the Father as we should, as we, that we should see ourselves as we should, how we need to repent. And we ask these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.